and welcome to the Connecting Citizens to Science podcast. I'm Dr. Kim Ozano. This is a podcast about how communities and people join with researchers and scientists to identify solutions to global health challenges. Please don't forget to like, rate, share and subscribe so that we can continue to share voices from around the world from people who are really driving lasting change. We hope you enjoy. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Connecting Citizens to Science podcast. We have a really important episode today. We are going to be talking about female genital schistosomiasis, which affects approximately 56 million girls and women in sub-Saharan Africa. I am here with co-host Pamela Mbambazi from the United Nations and guest Rhoda Ndubani, who is a study manager for a female sexual reproductive health screening program for FGS in Zambia. Christine Masonge, who is a PhD student exploring how culture and the social structures affect illness experiences and treatment pathways of girls and women with FGS. And finally, Dr. Victoria Gamba, who is a gynecologist based in Kenya. So let's start by saying hello to co-host Pamela. Hi, Pamela. What is FGS? The easiest way to describe it is to damage the female genital tract that results from their deposition of tiny eggs that uh, cause the of an infection with a parasite, which is called the schistosomiasis hematobian type of parasite. This may sound like a big word, but more commonly people know this as Bilhazia. That's the easiest way to remember it. And how do women and girls come across the parasites? The infection occurs when women, girls, or even any individuals uh, get in contact with infested water. So you may be out going for a swim in a, in a freshwater body that's infected. You could be going to do your regular chores, washing clothes in the river, or you could be going to water your animals. Just the fact that you have skin contact with an infected water body source where this parasite resides, it penetrates your skin and gets into your blood system. And that's how you get the infection. It is not a sexually transmitted infection, despite the word uh, female genital schistosomiasis seeming to imply that something in the genital tract is sexually transmitted. It is not. It's an infection that's acquired by getting in contact with infected waters. I know that there's stigmatization around FGS because of the area where the infection occurs. What is the impact of that stigmatization, especially as often it's misdiagnosed as a sexually transmitted diseases? What's the impact for women in the areas? where it's prevalent? The main thing is that because of the anatomy that's affected, it's a private, intimate part of a human being. This is an aspect of our human existence as females for which we are valued in most social cultural contexts. Your reproductive potential diminishes your value and has a huge spectrum of consequences. Stigma is a real issue related to that, of course, is mental health and several other consequences that accompany that. Just to name a few of those consequences to set up the rest of the episode, I understand that it can affect fertility, anemia, cervical cancer, miscarriage, and often can increase infant and maternal mortality. Is that right? That's absolutely right. I will use one explanation to show how terrible this infection is when you have it, is that for every pair of worms that are circulating in your blood system, on average, each of these worms excretes about 500 eggs per day. Just imagine if you have like 200 worms, multiply that by 500. If you have 300 worms, 1,000 worms, just keep the maths going. And that equates into the equivalent of someone dropping sand in your genital tract 
every day, every day. So just imagine what that would be like for you. It's a terrible, terrible condition to have. Yeah, I think that analogy is really important to understand the severity and also to recognize that it's intergenerational, low birth rates and anemia pass through to the next generation who have consequences as well. Thank you for highlighting that. But the good news is there is global action on FGS and we have three great guests with us today, which I'm going to leave to you to understand what they're doing to tackle FGS. Victoria, what do you know about FGS in the course of your work and how has this changed your whole practice? A very good question. I'm an obstetrician and gynecologist practicing in Nairobi, Kenya. First and foremost, we knew about urogenital schistosomiasis all the way from undergraduate studies. However, the genital aspect has been very silent in most of the textbooks. You don't get to see exactly how it looks like. And even as we continued just doing our usual screening tests or speculum examination. The only thing we knew how to do was if you see the cervix and you don't see cancer and you don't see any STI, just let the lady go home because, you know, the eye sees what the eye knows. If you don't know what it is, as long as it's not on the bad end of the spectrum, you allow the women to go home. At that point, we still didn't know exactly how FGS presents or looks like during speculum examination. But then through our various trainings by participating and volunteering with the Department of uh, Neglected Tropical Diseases here in Kenya, and also through Pamela, through the WHO manual that you really highlighted a lot about what FGS looks like, how to diagnose it based on either laboratory markers or just visual inspections. I think now it has influenced our practice to be more aware about how FGS looks like. Where you're doing any screening or speculum examination, we look out for FGS lesion. Clearly, you as a professional have had to address some misconceptions about the disease. As you said, basically a low clinical index of suspicion, which in the course of your work, you're also influencing your own sphere where it is that you're working. Rhoda, what type of innovations do you think uh, could be done or are necessary to be able to overcome the type of barriers that uh, women with this condition would experience or would have to overcome in order to get a correct diagnosis? There's a lot of challenge to diagnose FGS in most of our health facilities due to limited resources and, of course, equipment. I must say, in one of the studies we did on FGS, one of the things that we actually did identify was the low awareness of FGS among healthcare providers. FGS is not something that is routinely tested in the health facilities. So if a woman presents those symptoms, the first test that will be given is either on sexually transmitted infections or UTI. So already there is that barrier and also chances of being misdiagnosed. And also resources are also lacking in this public health facilities so there's need for more resources and also more equipment that could help FGS. At the moment, in most of the health facilities, they use the, the urine to test for obihazia. But then there's more that needs to be done for us to also detect FGS. How can science and research make sure that we bridge this knowledge gap such that a woman is able to get a diagnosis and not have to live through ignorance and pass on those misconceptions to our own children 
and the children after. I think one of the things we could do to improve on that is, of course, provide the women with the knowledge that they need to have an FGS. First of all, to find out how can they get the parasite, what can they do to prevent getting the parasite, and also where can they go to seek health services if they have FGS. I think it's impacting that knowledge among its community members that will help us in the long run to fight FGS. Once the community is aware about it, they know how to prevent FGS or they know where they can seek services for FGS. I think this will help us to tackle this disease through awareness. One can't help but think of self-testing as well as a possible option. The testing for COVID-19 was quite rigorous, but now the diagnostics and research has moved to such a point that we even have home testing kits. Do you see that becoming a possibility in the future? In the studies, that I've worked on and the study that I'm currently working on, we are using the self-sampling vaginal swabs for women to test for FGS. This is done in the community at household level as well as the health facility. When you're going the households to provide the self-sampling tests, you have to, first of all, give the women the knowledge on FGS and also take more time to demonstrate how to use that self-swab we've noticed in the study is that there's high acceptability of the self-test, which is very positive. And of course, there could be challenges with uh, providing these self-test kits because those uh, limited resources. I think it's one of the challenges that probably might face. We hope to see that something like that actually comes into reality. And then you can look back to us to WHO to work with our partners and figure out how to look for subsidies and work with governments to see how this can be something that's more mainstream in health systems and accessible to populations that really need it. Victoria, which innovative ways do you see us trying to actually get the gynecologists in our type of settings to engage more on FGS? The most important thing at this point is to remember you're dealing with women. So when you use a human-centered approach or a human lens, when you look at that woman, she carries a lot of things. She might have a breast disease, she might have uterine disease, she might have all this. And I want to thank all the stakeholders that have put forward, you know, different programs that are a bit siloed at the moment. But if we were to relook this again and say, okay, so if this one person comes to the hospital, are you able to give her integrated treatment instead of telling her, go to this family planning, go to this antenatal clinic, then go to this cervical cancer screening? For sure, that woman won't come back. So to ensure that continuity is there, I think number one is leveraging on the existing programs that are available mm-hmm. and just looking for ways where we can integrate things because I mean um, you're a woman going through that speculum exam is not interesting at all mm-hmm. so you can imagine having to do like different speculum examination for each clinician that you see so if there's any way that we can be able to have the integrated algorithm or this is how FGS looks like if you're screening for STI, these are the things you're looking for so that you make it a one-time visit approach for the patient so that they get a comprehensive care. And after that, you know, they get the treatment that they actually deserve and on time. Basically, it's more about calls for integration and being accountable to these women. I think uh, we ought to give them what they deserve. Indeed, you have highlighted several ways in which Possibly there are latent opportunities that we are underutilizing. 
Integration is definitely a key one way to go forward and how to explore harness the efficiencies in that within our health systems is something that we should look into. And indeed, WHO put aside some guidelines of how this could be done over the life course. We need to be centered on the woman as a whole, not, not an anatomy or a disease per se. So from Christine would like to hear what would be your suggestions from the perspective of a community of social scientists and how do you see girls, young girls being empowered to be aware of FGS and to be able to seek treatment for FGS in a timely manner along their life course so that they are more knowledgeable adults and don't suffer the same fate as their parents and the generations that have gone before them. The young girls are in a community. So the idea of this podcast being about reaching communities is important because these girls are within communities. And to get to these young girls, you have to follow the protocol. In most cases, the young girls are either under older women or under men, husbands or fathers or uncles. There is something important, reaching out to the whole community as one, letting the information go further than just the young girls in order to empower the young girls themselves. So I think there's a lot about sensitization on a large community at once, not just targeting young girls, but targeting the community as a whole. Again, we know that knowledge is power. We need to empower women. We need to empower girls, not only to strengthen the agency that they already have themselves, but also to be a stronger place to care of their own reproductive health, their own sexuality. So what are some of the ways you see this being done in a manner that's sustainable? and effective in the type of communities where this disease is endemic. We use drama performances to raise awareness about FGS in the community among us, the girls and women, and also to inform women about the available FGS services at the local health facility. We did train a drama group in the community. The drama group went and performed drama scripts relating to FGS. We did get quite a good response from the women. Um, after they learned more about FGS through the drama. And I must say that during the drama performance, you could see women um, asking more questions. We talked about the symptoms for FGS. They became very attentive and asked a lot of questions about that. Later on, they would actually accept to go and be tested for FGS. I must say that, um, you know, as we raise this awareness, as we give this knowledge about FGS to women and girls, also not forgetting um, the males, looking at our African context. There are times where a woman needs to get permission from their spouses to go and have some of these tests. So as we did the drama, we also uh, tried to invite the men also to come for these uh, performances so that they could also have this knowledge. We also engaged quite a number of um, uh, community leaders, which I think is also very important as you raise uh, awareness or give knowledge about FGS. It's also good to engage the community leaders. The men were also invited during this drama performances. We also produced brochures uh, mm-hmm. that had more information about FGS, which we gave out to the men, but also even the women. They also asked for those brochures mm-hmm. so that they could also go and inform mm-hmm. their men about what was happening in the community about mm-hmm. this disease. I would say it's, it's very important to bringing all these strategies. Thank you so much once again, Rhoda, for highlighting the intersectionality with several other things that FGS has and for bringing that out, that issue about men. While we address these issues, we know that um, 
we really need our males to also step up and be part of this. We know that to have GS, we also need the agency and participation of males. There is the issue around power and gender. Decision-making is mostly in the hands of men in most of the cultures. For example, decision-making around health, when to go for treatment, where to go for treatment, and even spending around health. This is something the men have more of a monopoly on. I think there is the gender dynamics and there are also other things that play a huge role there, but empowering the women is sensitizing them, sensitizing the health workers and also every member of the community. Because when they are aware there is this issue and they can go for help. Thank you so much for all your insight. Thanks, Pamela. That was a wonderful conversation. Rhoda, could you give us the one piece of advice for those working in FGS and trying to reach communities? It's very important to engage communities as we do research. One of the things is bringing on board uh, the different community stakeholders within the community. As you start your project, make sure that the community leaders, uh, community-based organizations, are involved at the beginning of the research so that they're aware and also they're also able to also bring in other community stakeholders and to do in that research. It is also important to make sure that you give out more information, the right information about your research to community members so that they're able to understand what exactly is happening, what exactly is needed from them at the end of the day. Uh, it's what gives you the, a positive response and the best results for your research. Victoria, please, one piece of advice for others in your position. One of the things that I do want to bring out is, as Rhoda said, it's mostly about engaging all stakeholders so that you create demand from both the community itself, the community healthcare workers, the community leaders. It brings about continuity. It allows you to penetrate further into the community. And at the end of the day, you also have to listen. I know we do come up with um, approaches that are textbook, but you also have to listen, look, uh, just try and understand community itself. What are their challenges? Why are they doing certain activities so that, you know, you bring about an intervention that can work? And it's sustainable even when the project or the finances are over. Great. So generate that demand and make sure that the programs are sustainable long term. Wonderful. And Christine, one piece of advice, please. The first thing is to encourage anybody wanting to work in communities to reach out to communities. Because within these communities, there are existing structures. There are trusted networks and social structures, which once you build on them, it's already a first step towards ownership. This means meeting the people themselves, working with their social structures, engaging with them at once. The idea of ownership is something which is key for us in social science because I won't just come through my own networks or my own methods, but then the participative nature of it, of working through them. You have the traditional health workers, you have the traditional birth attendants. These are ladies who know the communities, they know the people. Once you meet these women and explain what you want to do, that's already a huge step in getting access to other women. So there's a whole mechanism which is based within communities. And just a bit of understanding, stakeholder mapping around these communities, you get in contact with, this, with these structures, with this network, and it's the easiest way you can go about. Instead of coming as an outsider, you'll be working from inside through them. And finally, to take us home, Pamela, what piece of advice would you like to end the show on? I would like to point out that uh, the WHO member states have endorsed a roadmap 
for addressing the tropical diseases to the year 2030. In this, we have a goal to eliminate morbidity due to schistosomiasis, and female genitalomiasis is one of them. This goal is very well aligned also with the intention to eliminate cervical cancer by the year 2070. So it will be a shame for us to get to the year 2070 when we have no cervical cancer, but then have women still walking around with genitalia that look like they have cervical cancer because we did not address FGS. I would call on everyone to familiarize themselves with the strategic document that's been put out and the guidance in the roadmap to 2030, because in there, the three pillars of how this can be done are highlighted. Preventive chemotherapy, treat, 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 treat people with present one tail. Don't wait for diagnosis, treat post-suspicion treat, water and sanitation. We need to give people better water. And most importantly, also for those that have established mobility, we really need more research from gynecologists and surgeons to help us come up with solutions to treat women for whose female genitalialysis will not respond. This is a persistent gap. And I thank everyone who's joining this effort. Thank you, Pamela. Wonderful pieces of information there for, for the audience to act on and um, some calls to action as well. So thank you to all of our guests today and the wonderful co-host, Pamela. Thank you for your participation. And to our audience and our listeners, please don't forget to like, rate, share and subscribe so we can continue to bring the voices of people from around the world as you've heard today. Thank you very much and bye for now. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye.